0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter nine. We will again uh, be looking at Acts chapter nine, verses one through nine, the account of Paul's so-called Damascus Road experience, his uh, encounter with the risen and glorified Christ that uh, forever changed his life, and in so doing changed the course of history. Last Sunday when we looked at these same verses, we focused on the person of Saul. Uh, we, we tried to identify some of the implications of, of Jesus calling and converting. What we call effectual calling, calling with effect. What were the implications of, of Jesus effectually calling a man like Saul of Tarsus? As the first verse of our text makes clear, Saul was a bad man, and not in a good way. He was an enemy of Jesus' disciples, and therefore, he was an enemy of Jesus. And because he was an enemy of Jesus, he was an enemy of God. Not only did he approve of the murder of Stephen, as we saw in in chapter 8, but he was actively perpetrating such. He was continually breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. In fact, that's why he was on his way to Damascus. He was, he was there with letter in hand from the high priest, with the authority to arrest that any that he found belonging to the ways, so that it might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is the man that Jesus encounters on the road, the man whom Jesus calls to himself and the man whom Jesus commissions for service in his kingdom. It can sometimes be hard for us to understand why Jesus would call a man like Saul. But as we saw last Sunday, his call actually provides for us first a great comfort, then an encouragement and finally challenge. It's a a comfort because it reminds us that that we are not beyond the reach of God's grace. We don't often let other people see it, but we have our own insecurities. We know our own sin. We we know the the blackness of our own hearts. We know the things that we have done and the reasons that we have done them, and we can sometimes wonder if if we are too far gone. And Jesus' encounter with, with Saul reminds us that no. Great is our sin, but greater is his grace. We are not beyond his reach. But not only is there a comfort, there's also an encouragement. and An encouragement that reminds us that if, if Jesus can convert Saul... He can also convert our loved ones who who seem to resist his call in many of the same ways. We we all know someone, a friend, a a family member, maybe even a spouse, someone who is is actively resisting and maybe even has adamantly rejected Jesus' call. And yet, this verse reminds us, this encounter reminds us that that despite their hard-heartedness, despite the, the stiffness of their neck, they are not stronger than Jesus' call. God can reach them, and Jesus can call them to himself. And so there's an encouragement here not to, to give up on our loved ones, but there's also a challenge not to, to write off our enemies. <laughs> because just as, as God can convert our loved ones, he can also convert those who we regard as enemies, those who, who we want to see God's judgment fall upon because they are actively seeking our harm as followers of Christ. And we're reminded that, that, that our enemies even can be called by Jesus. They are not beyond the reach of his grace. And so in this text, we, we have that comfort, we have that encouragement, and we have that challenge. And we see all of this in, in Jesus calling a man like Saul. Well, this morning I want us to look at these verses again, but this time instead of focusing on Saul, I want us to focus on Jesus himself the other main character in this story. I want us to see the implications of of Jesus himself confronting Saul and of Jesus himself calling him into his service. We'll we'll see two things in particular this morning. We'll we'll see first that that Jesus is himself the, the goal of his call. When Jesus calls, he calls you to himself. But not only is he the goal of the call, he is also the ground of the call. It's because Jesus is the one calling that we are to answer. And so uh, let's read this text together. But before we do, let's first pray and ask for God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we come before you humbly acknowledging that your word is the word of life. That it's by your word that we have been born again to a living hope. And Father, we pray now that your word would do its work in and among us, Father. Uh, That we would be uh, more and more conformed to the image of the glory of your Son. And that we would be further equipped to serve him well, both now and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. This is the very word of God. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither eating nor drinking. This is the word of the Lord. Children, you can come forward for the children's sermon. So how many of you know what this is? You know what it is? What what is it? It's a Rubik's cube, that's right. And and it's it's sort of a puzzle, right? It, it's a puzzle that you're supposed to to solve. And if you and if you know how to solve it, you can make this look like this. I can't. Um, I've tried to learn actually. I've I've like read books and watched YouTube videos, and my mind just doesn't work that way. Like I I can't figure it out. Even when I know the algorithms that that you're supposed to use, like the turns that you're supposed to do, I always pick the wrong ones because I, I look at it and I get confused about where all the yellow dots are, right? And, and so I've tried, but I, but I can't solve it. How many of you think you could learn how to solve it? You think you could? How did you get that one? How did I get this one? Well, that's a very good question. You see, there's someone in my house who can. In fact, not only can she solve it, but if you give it to her, no matter how mixed up it is, my daughter Hannah can solve it in under a minute. Do you believe that? She can, she can sometimes do it even, even faster than that, but, but she can take this and turn it into this in less than a minute. I could spend an hour, and it would still pretty much look like this. Now, that's kinda hard to, to believe, especially if you've never tried it before, because it's, it's really hard to solve a Rubik's Cube. And so you may be wondering, well, is that really true? Now, some of you just believe it because I'm your pastor, and I'm supposed to tell the truth, and so you, you believe me when I tell you I've seen my daughter do it. Others of you are a little more skeptical. And you're like, I don't know if that's true or not. I I would wanna see her do it. Well, we have a situation sort of like that in the text that I read today from from Acts chapter nine, right? The apostles are going around Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and and even beginning to go beyond there and and they're, they're telling people something much more difficult to believe than that my daughter can solve a Rubik's Cube in under a minute. Do you know what they're telling people? They're telling people that Jesus is God, and that he came in human flesh, and that he lived among us, and then he died for our sins, even as the scriptures had predicted. We, we heard it in our call to worship this morning, right? He died according to the scriptures so that we could be forgiven, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead on the third day, and because he rose again from the dead on the third day, we... Now don't have to fear death, because while our bodies will eventually wear out, we will not stay dead either. Like him, we will rise. Like him, we will be given new bodies. Like him, we will live forever with God in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the apostles and the disciples are are telling people. Now, do you think that's harder to believe than that that my daughter can solve a Rubik's Cube? That's hard to believe. People don't come undead. Like, Like, that doesn't happen. And yet Jesus rose again from the dead. And so there were some who, who believed that when the apostles told them. Just like you believe it when I tell you that my daughter can solve a Rubik's cube. But there were others like Saul who didn't believe it. In fact, they thought it was a terrible lie. They thought people were lying about God and they were angry about it. And they, were trying to, they were doing everything in their power, even sometimes really bad things. To try to stop people from, to try to stop Jesus from disciples from telling other people this story about Jesus. But in the story that we heard today, something changed Saul's mind. Something turned him from from hating the story and from trying to, to stop those who were telling the story to loving the story, to believing the story, and to telling everybody he could about the story. Do you know what that was? Jesus. That's exactly right. He saw it. He saw it with his own eyes. Jesus himself, the resurrected Lord, appeared to Saul on the road and said, Hey, why are you persecuting me? Why are you you hating my people? I'm here in all my glory. The story is true. It's real. I rose from the dead. I'm alive. And because I'm alive, It means you don't ever have to fear death again. It means I am the Savior who can save you from your sins and give you life eternal in the age to come. That's the reality that we can believe because Jesus is alive. Now, like you, you have to believe me when I tell you my daughter can do the Rubik's Cube because she's not here. And most of us have to take the, the word of the apostles for it, but we can believe them. Why? Because they saw it with their own eyes. We can believe Paul when he tells us because they, we, he saw it with his own eyes and he tells us what he has seen. He's an eyewitness to the story. And so we haven't seen Jesus with our own eyes, but we have heard the testimony of those who have. And therefore we can believe it. We can believe that Jesus is alive and therefore we can rest all our hope on him. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear our sins because he can save us from both. And because he's alive and because he can do that for us, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. All right, you guys can go back to your seats. All right, if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to uh, that passage, Acts chapter 9 that we're talking about here. And as we've been saying, this is the, the story of Saul's encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. It's not just a vision that he has. He encounters Jesus himself. Jesus encounters him, I should say, on the road. He, he, he encounters him in such a way that it actually knocks him off his horse and, and, and blinds him as we, as we see in the text. And I want us to to think about the significance of that. I I want us this morning to, to really wrestle with the implications of Jesus himself encountering Saul on the road to Damascus. And the first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus is calling people to himself. Jesus is the goal of the call. We, we see this first in the language of, of the call itself. Look at what Jesus says to Saul when he encounters him. He, he says, Why are you persecuting me? And, and put in putting it this way, Jesus is obviously closely identifying with his followers. But we, we, we've heard uh, people use this type of language even in our own experience. We, we can imagine a, a mother or a father or even sometimes a big brother saying, Hey, when you mess with my kid, when you mess with my little brother, you mess with me. They're part of my family. I'm one with them. We can, we can imagine a king saying it about his, his subjects. Hey, when you attack one of my cities, when you, when you attack my subjects, you are attacking me. Well, that, that's what Jesus is, is saying here. He, he so identifies with his people. He says, these are my people. This is my body. These are my followers. When you attack them, when you persecute them, you are persecuting me. And what we need to, to hear in that is, is we need to, to hear that, that Jesus is challenging Saul to, to turn from persecution to, to being persecuted. To becoming one of the the persecuted and challenging saul's persecution of the church jesus is is challenging him to reconsider his posture towards jesus himself he says that if you in persecuting the church you are persecuting me the risen lord the glorified lord the the one whose glory has knocked you off your horse and and taken your sight." he's not simply challenging saul to to stop persecuting the church He's doing that, but he's doing more than that. He he's he's challenging Saul to bow to him as the glorified and and resurrected Lord. He's challenging him to become one of his disciples, to to join the persecuted, to, to become a proponent of the one whom he was so viciously opposing. And notice how Jesus' people, notice how this group is described here in the context. First, they're, they're called disciples of the Lord. And, and then they're called uh, those who belong to the, the way. And that language is, is telling. A disciple is a learner. A, a disciple is, is one who, who, who learns from his master. It's, it's more than a student, the way that we use that language today. A student can sit in a class and can, some, can learn some information, but, but a disciple is something more than that. A disciple is one who, who not only learns and studies ideas, even a person's ideas but it's rather one who who studies an entire person, his entire way of life. A a disciple learns his master's uh, worldview, his his conceptual framework, the the, the way that he thinks about things, the the way that he values things, the way that he he makes decisions. He, He learns all of that from his master so that he can live like his master. So that he can walk in the, the footsteps of his master. Even when his master is no longer physically there, he follows him. He, he walks in his way. In fact, that's why it's called the way. Yes, the, the way, uh, the, the faith is a way to life. It is, it is certainly that. We, we know it from a verse like John three sixteen. The one who believes... Will not perish, but have eternal life. So, so the faith is a way to life, but it's more than that. It is a way of life. It is a way of living. And it's a way identified with Jesus. It's Jesus' way. We, we become imitators of him. We become conformed to, to his image. We, we grow up into him more and more. We're to put him on as our way of life. That's what Saul is being called to. That's the significance of Jesus himself encountering Saul on the road. He is calling him. He's saying, listen. He said, stop persecuting me and join me. Become one of my disciples. Join yourself to the way. And I think that has profound implications for us today. It shows us that the, the call to repentance, the, the call to repentance, to, to, Join yourself to Jesus is a call to discipleship. The the first apostles and then the the other disciples who who join them, they are not sent out to make converts. They're not trying to get decisions for Christ. They're not trying to get people to, to pray a prayer. They're not selling fire insurance. In some sense, all of that is true. You know? we, we are to convert. We are to be converted. We are to, to, to pray uh, that, that God would forgive us and, 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 and join ourselves to Him so that we will not perish but have eternal life. All of that is, is true, but the faith that we are called to repentance is, is so much more than that. It is turning from our sin back to God with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. It is turning to walk in a new way. That is what Saul is being called to. Now, not every person is going to receive exactly the same call that that Saul receives. Think about how Saul describes himself in the opening chapters of of Romans. He, He calls himself a servant, and that's true of us all. We've been called into the service of our king. We are all servants. But but as a servant, he's been given a particular job. He is an apostle, a a proclaimer of the gospel. Not all of us are called to be apostles, in fact. None of you, none of me, are called to be apostles. That's not our, our particular calling. But we are all called into the service of our king. We are all called to to follow him and to to serve his purposes, to do his will. We are all called to walk in the footsteps of, of his faith, of his way of life. There's no such thing as conversion without apprenticeship. Saul isn't just told to change his mind about Jesus and to pray a prayer and then, and then go home, go along uh, doing what he was doing before. He, he is to turn and to transform his entire life. He's now to bow to a new king and to serve him with all of his energy, as he, as he himself will write later. He is now to do all things to the glory of his new king. There's no such thing as conversion without apprenticeship. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not a disciple. Paul, Saul is called to Jesus himself. Now, we have to be careful at this point. We have to be, be careful that we don't misunderstand what that means. When I say that there's no such thing as conversion without apprenticeship, we have to remember that an apprentice is not a master. A disciple is still a Learner, he's he's on the way, but he's not home yet. He's he's in development, so to speak. And, and so, when don't hear this as a call that says you have to be perfect or or you're not good enough for Jesus, that would that would defeat the whole purpose of 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 the gospel. God calls sinners to Himself. He calls those who are in need of salvation, those who have have fallen woefully short. But when he calls a sinner to himself, he doesn't just say, you can be forgiven and go on your way. He says, I'm calling you into holiness. I'm calling you into a new way of life. I'm I'm calling you to, to follow me and to be conformed to the image of my glory more and more and more. He's calling you to become his, an apprentice, and an apprentice learns, apprentice develops. An apprentice comes more and more and more to look like his master. And that's what we see here, that, that Jesus is calling Saul to himself. He's calling him to become one of the persecuted. He's calling him to, be, to become a follower of the way. He's calling him to be one of his disciples. The glory of the gospel is that, that anyone, even a Saul, can become one of Jesus' disciples. No matter where you are this morning, the call is for you. We, we saw that last week. No matter, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you think of yourself, this grace is for you. Jesus is calling you to himself. And anyone who believes will not perish but have eternal life. Faith is the only requirement to turn to, to Jesus. But faith is required. And faith means more than uh, than, than believing a few propositions about Jesus. It means believing in Jesus himself. Believing that he is Lord and King. Believing that he is the one that you are called to follow. So the good news is that all who bow to him as Lord will be saved. But we must bow to him as Lord. That is what Saul is being called to do. That is what we are being called to do. And there simply is no other call. When Jesus calls you, he calls you to repentance. When Jesus calls you, he calls you to become his disciple. It's the first thing we see here in, in Jesus' encounter with, with Saul. But there's a second thing, a, a second thing here that I think we need to see, a second important element. And that's not only that Jesus is calling Saul to himself. But it's that Jesus is also calling Saul because of himself. (laughs) He's the ground of the call. He's not only the goal, he is is the the ground. I mean, think about it this way. If if Saul is being called to join those who he was persecuting, if if he's called to to now begin to profess this gospel that he was violently opposing, why, why would he answer such a call? What is it that compels Saul to repent and to completely reverse the course of his life up to this point? What is it that that compels him to give up that for which he had previously been so zealous? Well, here again, I said, we, we find our answer in the fact that it is Jesus himself who confronts Saul on the road to Damascus. In verse 9, we're we're told that after this encounter, Jesus uh, tells Saul to go into the city, and he does. He goes into the city, but he has to be led there by the hand because he's blind. And and he spends three days blind, without eating or drinking, just just pondering. And and if you're like me, you're you're tempted to ask, well, what was he thinking about? And of course, any answer to that question has to be somewhat speculative because Luke doesn't tell us. But I think the context strongly suggests that he was pondering this encounter. He was, he was pondering, he was thinking about the significance of the fact that he had just met Jesus in the body, a glorified body to be sure, but, but still he had met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. And that has profound implications. It does literally change everything. Do you remember what Paul's teacher had, had actually said back in chapter 5? You remember, the, the apostles are, are preaching Jesus as the Christ, as the only Savior of sinners, and it's, it's making the religi- religious authorities increasingly uncomfortable, increasingly angry. They've arrested them and arrested them again and arrested them again, and now they're, they're trying to decide, how are we going to stop this? What are we going to do to these men? What are we going to do to these apostles? And it's at that point that Gamaliel, uh, uh, Saul's former teacher, he says to the council, he says, Men of Israel... Take care what you are about to do with these men. He says, I know you're thinking about killing them. I know you think that's the only way to to silence them. But take care what you are about to do to these men. Take care because before these days, there was a guy named Thutis. You remember him? Thutis rose up, Gamaliel says, and he claimed to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and the whole thing came to nothing. Then another man, Judas the Galilean, he rose up, and he claimed to be somebody, and he gathered people to himself. But he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. What's Gamaliel saying? What's the the point that he is making to the council? What is he he warning them about? He's trying to help them to to see that, hey, listen, you already killed Jesus. (laughs) Just like you killed Thutis, just like you killed Judas the Galilean. You've already killed Jesus. You've already put him to death. And therefore, if Jesus is just another pretender... If, if Jesus is just like all the rest who, who claim to be somebody, but, but really were just self-promoted narcissists, if, if, if Jesus is just like them, then his followers will scatter. And this whole way, it will all come to nothing. But, but if Jesus really did rise from the dead, if you killed him and now he's alive again... <laughs> if he really did rise from the dead, victorious over sin and, and death, then that would prove that he was from God. And if he has risen, if he is from God, then opposing his disciples would be tantamount to opposing God, and that is the ultimate fool's errand. <laughs> he said, be careful what you are going to do with these men, because if, he, if Jesus really did rise, then opposing them will mean opposing God, and that is doomed to fail. It's doomed to fail. To oppose the Almighty never goes well for the finite. To to oppose God is is the ultimate fool's errand, but not only is it doomed to fail, it's, it's also just contrary to your good. Remember, God is not only the Almighty, He is the all-good. He is the the loving Father. He is the one who who created this world for us, and He is the one who is now redeeming this world and putting it right. Why would you oppose Him? If if He is the one who who can ultimately lead us into the new heavens and the new earth, to to oppose Him is not only doomed to fail, it is utter foolishness. And so Gamaliel warns the council. He says, listen, be careful what you are about to do with these men, because if Jesus really did rise... That changes everything. He didn't believe it, but he said, listen, if Jesus is dead, if he's still in the tomb, don't worry about his disciples. They'll they'll fade out. They'll they'll amount to nothing eventually. That was Gamaliel's advice. That's what Saul believed. He he was trying to extinguish the the flame as as quickly as, as possible, but now he had been encountered by the risen Lord. He had met him face to face on the road to Damascus, and that changed everything. Now he knew that Jesus was, in fact, alive. And therefore, what these apostles were saying was true. Paul himself will say it later in in one of his letters. He says, without the resurrection, if, if Jesus is still in the grave, there is no gospel. If Jesus did not rise... Then our faith is foolish. And, and denying yourself to follow him is beyond foolish. He says, Those who do so are to be pitied above all men. But, as we heard in our call to worship this morning, Jesus says, But, it, but, but Jesus did rise. He is not dead, He is alive just as He said. He has risen victorious over the grave, and therefore we who believe in Him have been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being kept for it through faith. That is the good news of Jesus' resurrection. He is alive, and because He rose victorious over the grave, That changes everything. There are lots of reasons that people have for rejecting Jesus' call. There are are lots of of reasons that that people have for for resisting him and even for outright rejecting them. Some have doctrinal reasons, they don't like this or or that uh, teaching, they don't like the idea of, of eternal punishment. It just seems distasteful to them. How how could God do that? Maybe they don't like the exclusivity of the of the gospel. If gospel really loves if God really loves people, how could he how could he confine salvation to this one story? Others have ethical reasons for resisting Jesus' call. They don't like what, what Jesus teaches about stewardship, about what he says you're to do with your money. Or maybe they don't like what, what Jesus teaches about sexuality, about, about how you're to, to live and, 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 and relate to people and, and love people. They, they don't like the, the life that Jesus calls us to. And so they resist or they, they reject him. Others have, have simply existential reasons. They have have endured a lot. They have have come under the full uh, weight of the brokenness of this world, and and they just simply cannot believe. They they wonder, how how could my life be like this if God is like that? Others have axiological reasons. They, they just don't think the good news is all that good. The, the call to deny yourself and follow somebody else, to, to surrender the authority of your own life, to give up your own autonomy, that just doesn't, doesn't sound like a good idea to them. They, they don't believe that the call to following Jesus is a call to a full and flourishing life. So there's all kinds of reasons You you may know people who who resonate with different reasons. You you may yourself resonate with different reasons. There's all kinds of reasons that, that people have for resisting Jesus' call. And I want you to hear me say there is a time and there is a place for all of these discussions. If you are here this morning and you are wrestling with, with some of these questions, if, if, you're, if you have doctrinal uh, you know, uh, obstacles in your way, if you have ethical obstacles in your way, if you have just sort of existential obstacles in your way, I would, I would love to, to have that conversation with you. I'd love to sit down with you over lunch and, and discuss where you are at. But even while there is a time and there is a place for those discussions, while I, would, I would love to, to pursue them with you. I want you to hear me say this morning that none of those objections is actually primary. I might be able to help you see the, the good news of, of God's perfect and, and eternal wrath against sin. I might be able to help you see that, that if God didn't hate sin, we would have no hope of heaven. I might be able to help you see that that Jesus' teaching on stewardship or on or on sexuality is actually uh, in accord with with your best life now. (laughs) I might be able to help you see the, the actual goodness of what Jesus is calling you to. But there is a more foundational question that you must deal with first. And that is the question of truth. Is it true? Is Jesus alive and calling you to himself? That's the first question. If it's true, it doesn't much matter whether you like it. I know that's unpopular to say in our world today, but you need to hear it. If it's true, it doesn't much matter whether you like it. It's good, it's sweet. (laughs) I I, I would love to help you to to learn that, that, that God's glory is inseparably bound up with your joy. That this is exactly what you were created for. I would love to help you see all that. But you hearing it as good news doesn't make it true. And you hearing it as bad news doesn't make it false. The question is, is it true? Is Jesus alive? Is he risen? That was the question that confronted Saul. If Jesus is in the grave, we must put a stop to this nonsense. But if Jesus is alive, we must give our lives to taking it to the end of the earth. That was what confronted Saul, and that's what confronts you this morning. If it's true, it doesn't much matter whether you like it, it doesn't much matter whether it makes sense to you. What you are called to is faith seeking understanding, faith comes first. And let me just let you in on a little secret. You will never fully comprehend. You will never fully get it. If that's what you're waiting for, it's never going to happen. We will never see the full glory of what God is doing. We will never fully comprehend the full full wonder of his his will. But you are called to faith. You are called to to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's risen uh, uh, victorious over sin and death. The one who will one day come again to establish his kingdom on earth as it is now in heaven. The one who will one day be with us in glory and with his Father for all eternity. Saul knew because the resurrected and glorified Christ had knocked him off his horse that this gospel was true and it changed his life forever. And if you see it this morning... If you see that that Jesus is alive, then it will too change you. And you may say, well, I don't see it. I don't see him in the flesh. And that's true. We we don't see him in the flesh. He is currently seated at the right hand of the Father in in the heavenly places. But we have the testimony of those who tell us they saw him with their own eyes. We're not following cleverly devised myths. We're following the testimony of eyewitnesses who were with him. Do you remember the story of Thomas? We call him Doubting Thomas. (laughs) Why do we we call him that? Well, because the first time Jesus appeared to the apostles, Thomas wasn't there. And so so Thomas said, I I won't believe it until I see him, until I lay my hands on him, until I I put my hand actually in his side. I won't believe it. And Jesus, and his infinite grace appeared to, to Thomas and let him do just that. Now, Thomas wasn't wrong to, to want to, to, to see a bodily risen Jesus. He knew that this gospel is only true if Jesus is alive. There's, there's actually nothing wrong with that. Thomas's error was in not believing the eyewitness testimony of those who told him we've seen him. And so we, like Thomas, we're waiting that day when we will see him, when we will be able to touch him with our own hands. It's not yet but we have the testimony of those who have. Let us believe them. Let us entrust ourselves to their testimony as it's it's confirmed to us by the Holy Spirit himself, as we see again and again and again throughout this book. God made clear that this story is more than a story. This is history. This is truth. Jesus is alive. And because he is risen, the gospel is true because the gospel is true, we can entrust ourselves to it. We can rest in it, and we find new life, both now and forevermore, in belonging to Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. And because he is alive, because he is risen, and because he will one day come again, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you We thank you for this account. We thank you for the story of Jesus' encounter with Saul. We thank you for the hope that it gives us, Father. The certainty that your son is alive. And that because he is alive, the gospel is true. Father God, give us the the grace that we need to believe it, to receive it, and to live out of it all our days. That you might be glorified and that we might be blessed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.